Tonight we'll be continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. The portion of text that we'll be looking at is chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. But let's read from the beginning of chapter 2 in order to be reminded of the immediate context. And so we read, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as your, your children, as your sheep, asking, Lord, that you would feed us from your word, that you would nourish us from the scriptures. Lord, to this end, we ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to be able to hear the word of God. Let it come into our lives and do its work, causing us to repent of our sins, causing us to glorify your name, causing us to grow more and more into the image of Christ. That is our hope, that is our prayer, that is our goal tonight as we hear your word. So Father, do this for us. We ask these things only in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. So, to recap what we saw in the previous sermon, we focused on Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be humble like Christ. Paul had been charging them to be united, and so we learned that humility would be necessary if there was to be genuine unity among the Philippian believers. This humility would also require them to live selflessly, considering others as being more significant than themselves, and thus putting the needs and concerns of others above their own. Paul then wastes no time in pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ as the prime example of humility. Jesus displayed all the marks of humility perfectly, denying his own rights, lowering himself in rank and dignity, serving others. We saw that this humility led Christ into the state of humiliation that we know of as the condescension. We saw how Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by taking on human nature. We saw how he became obedient to the Father, even to the point of dying a humiliating death, nailed to a cross. We saw how Christ served his people in the greatest way possible, securing our salvation from the wrath of God and, by his stripes, healing us, creating in us new hearts 
making us able to humble ourselves before God in love and adoration, whereas previously we were his enemies, the children of wrath. He made us able to love each other and serve each other within the church, having the same mind that Jesus himself had. Exploring the truth of what Jesus did for us in becoming lowly to service has hopefully blessed and encouraged us, and hopefully it has moved us to follow his example to serve our brethren. Indeed, exploring Christ's lowliness has been worthy of our focus and attention. However, we must also remember that the story did not end there. From verse 9 we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord Jesus did not remain in a state of humiliation and lowliness. The God-man, the mediator between God and man, Jesus the Christ, he rose from the grave after his humiliating death. His body was resurrected and he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ humbled himself and therefore God has highly exalted him. Brothers and sisters, humility with a view to being like-minded servants of our brethren was our focus last time. But tonight, we will focus on humility with a view to exaltation and the glorification of God. We will see the result of genuine Christ-like humility as we look at the exaltation of Christ and how it has brought glory to God. Now, I actually intended to preach on the exaltation of Christ during the last sermon. But upon further study, I realized that doing so would have made the sermon almost two hours long. It's a pretty long stretch. So clearly there's a lot of truth to dig into here. Now, I want to speak first of all about the relationship between humility and exaltation. Key to understanding this portion of the text from verse 9 to 11 is to understand that those who humble themselves before God will in due time be exalted by God. Thus, there exists a close relationship between humility and exaltation. These ideas can seem opposed to each other in and of themselves. After all, highness is literally the opposite of lowliness. But when understood in the context of the life and mission of Christ, we see just how closely related the two are. The Apostle Paul is teaching us here that God exalted Christ because he humbled himself. That his exaltation was as a result of him humbling himself. And furthermore, as we will see, his exaltation was his reward for humbling himself. The scripture says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That word, therefore, is very important because it acts as a bridge between these two seemingly antithetical ideas these two seemingly opposed ideas of lowness and highness. But the scripture is saying the two aren't opposed to each other. Humility before God leads to exaltation by God. God has been pleased to bless and reward the humble because only they glorify him as he ought to be glorified. And through God's exaltation of the humble, God has been pleased to reveal himself as the one who alone has the power 
and authority to exalt, so that he alone receives the glory. To further impress upon you the close relationship between humility and exaltation, just look at what the scripture has to say. Proverbs 29.23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23.12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 1.52 He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's clear from scripture that God loves the humble. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3.34 Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So hopefully you can now see that, having examined the humility of Christ, it is appropriate that we should also examine the result of that humility, the exaltation of Christ. The central theme of this message is actually the same as the last one. Be humble like Christ. However, as I mentioned earlier, the focus is different. Last time we focused on the necessity of humility in Christian fellowship. Examining the humility of Jesus was necessary for us to grasp what Paul was demanding of us when he admonished us to be like-minded, selfless, humble servants. But now we're going to be looking at the reward for humility and what that tells us about how God views the humble. We'll also see how humility gives glory to God. The sermon tonight will be broken down into two main parts. Those are the nature of the exaltation of Christ and two, the cause and purpose of the exaltation of Christ. The nature of the exaltation and the cause and purpose of the exaltation. So with that said, let's examine the nature of the exaltation of Christ. Now, Reformed theology recognizes four distinct stages to Christ's exaltation. Those being his resurrection, his ascension, his seating at the right hand of God, and his physical return to earth. Now, one could preach whole sermons on each of these four stages, but a brief look at them will suffice for recognizing just how awesome the exaltation of Christ is. Firstly, the resurrection. I'm sure all of us are familiar with it to some degree. But what is it that actually happened in the resurrection? Well, most of us would say that Jesus, having died, came to life again. That's a pretty simple answer. And it's not a wrong answer. But when examined more closely, we see that the resurrection of Jesus was much more than him coming to life again. When considered in theological terms, Resurrection is not simply the dead coming back to life. What if I were to make the claim that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected from the dead? Some of you might say, hang on a second, that's not right. What about Lazarus? He was really dead, and he really came back to life. And as a matter of fact, Jesus himself personally raised him prior to his crucifixion. 
So that proves Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected from the dead. And to that, I'll say, yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was not resurrected from the dead. I'll explain. When discussing those who are raised to life from the dead, there are two categories. Those who are resurrected and those who are revivified. Now that word has fallen out of use in our modern vernacular. It comes from the word revivified. Now admittedly, pretty simple, I know. Admittedly, a normal dictionary search of those two words will yield no difference in their respective meanings. They both basically mean to bring back to life from the dead. But as I said, in a theological context, in the mind of a theologian, the two words have become distinct because they need to be distinct. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to speak accurately about the two categories. Now then, the obvious question is, what's the difference? Well, here's the answer. Sometime after Jesus revivified Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus died. After Jesus revivified him, he continued to live his life for some time. He aged the way we all do. He probably continued to experience illness and infirmity the way we all do. And eventually, whether by natural means or otherwise, he died again. How do I know this? Well, he isn't still around. <laughs> There's no 2,000-year-old man named Lazarus walking around telling us about how things were in his day. Also, the scripture gives us no indication that he was translated to heaven without dying in the way that Enoch or Elijah were. So the obvious conclusion is, he died again and turned to dust like the vast majority of humanity. That's what happened to everyone who was ever reading the fight in scripture. The widow's son in the book of Kings, Jairus' daughter, Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, they were all raised to life, but eventually they died again. However, those who have been resurrected from the dead are raised immortal. They will never die again. That's the difference. That's why I said the resurrection of Jesus was much more than him coming to life again. Rather, he came to life again and there was a change to his physical body. To be clear, it was the same body that was beaten and spit on and pierced. The same body that bore our sins and was nailed to a cross. That same body was raised to life again, but it had been changed. It had been upgraded. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, what was sown was perishable, but what was raised was imperishable. It was sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory. It was sown in weakness. It was raised in power. It was sown a natural body. It was raised a spiritual body. For his perishable body had put on the imperishable, and his mortal body had put on immortality. The two categories exist because the upgraded, imperishable, or resurrected body of Christ must be distinguished from the regular, perishable, revivified body of Lazarus. See the difference? Now, make no mistake, revivification was a gracious act of God used to display his power. But it was never meant to be our final hope. The renewed life is only temporary. But resurrection is our hope. 
eternal life that we may spend with God, that is our hope. So praise be to God that the scripture says that since we have been unified with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus will never die again, and neither will we. So now that we're all looking forward to our resurrected bodies, and wondering what these upgraded bodies can do, let me just tell you, I really don't know. We see that after his resurrection, Jesus was able to appear and disappear suddenly from location to location. But was this a feature of his resurrected body? Or was this the manifest power of his deity? I don't know. But I'm sure that our resurrected bodies will be perfectly suited to that new heavens and new earth which we all await. In any case, the significance of the resurrection is that it exalts Jesus and shows him to have power over death. It identifies him as the one who has eternal life in himself. The one who lays down his life has the power to take it back up again. It also exalts Jesus as the only one who is able to pay the price for the sins of men. Now, scripture teaches us the resurrection was a sign that the payment for sin was accepted by the Father. And now the second stage in the exaltation of Christ, the ascension. Jesus, having completed his earthly mission to redeem those whom the Father had given to him, returned to the Father. After his resurrection, he appeared to many of his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then, on the Mount of Olives, in the sight of the disciples, he rose from the ground into the sky until a cloud hid him from their view. The ascension is a very important stage in the exaltation for several reasons. It was a sign that he had completed his work and that his labors had been accepted by the Father. Only now that it was complete could he return. It was a sign that his time of humiliation and lowliness was at an end. Because now, quite literally, he would be high and lifted up. No longer would his glory be veiled. No longer would his majesty be hidden. Now he was being exalted. It's interesting to note that the next time you see Jesus in the New Testament, in John's vision, we see not an ordinary, unremarkable carpenter's son, but a terrifyingly awesome Superman with snow-white hair and eyes blazing with fire and a booming voice like that of a raging sea or an enormous waterfall. This was a vision of the ascended and exalted Christ. Also, it signified his promotion to a higher office. His ascension from the earth signified his moving from a lowly life of sorrows as the sin-bearing lamb to the office of high priest and king. The grim task of the suffering servant now complete, he would now be literally raised and promoted to the station of highest honor in heaven, enthroned as king. The third stage in the exaltation and that's Christ seating at the right hand of God. Having ascended into heaven, he fulfilled what he spoke to the chief priests on the night when he was betrayed, saying, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus returned to his Father in heaven to be officially installed as king and ruler, having all authority and power. The Son of Man, Jesus, the mediator between God and man, he was exalted to the right hand of God, and as our text says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From this position, he governs over the church in heaven and all the earth. He commands the whole heavenly host and sends them where he wills to do his bidding. He controls all of nature and exercises dominion over all men and angels, even those who are hostile to his kingdom. From this position, he serves as high priest, presenting his once and for all sacrifice to the Father for the continued outpouring of grace and blessing to the saints, continually making intercession for his people. This man, Christ Jesus, is indeed high and lifted up having the highest position of honor and authority at the right hand of God. I think many of us may be missing the awesome significance of this stage in the exaltation. I know I certainly was. Because we get so accustomed to hearing about Jesus being God, so it's not really shocking to us that he should be at the Father's right hand as king and ruler. But realize though, Jesus was also a man. So a man is seated at the right hand of God. This is amazing. Think about this. As I said, Jesus is both God and man. He is truly God and truly man. He possesses both the divine nature and the human nature. Thus, when we consider the exaltation of Jesus, we are considering the exaltation of everything that he is. Both natures being exalted. Now here is where we must be careful to avoid heresy. All right? When we think about the divine nature being exalted at his seating at the right hand of God, it could only be in the sense of his rights as God being taken back up, whereas he had laid them down in the condescension to become a servant. It could only be in the sense of the resumed display and showing forth of divine glory that he had of the Father before the world began. It was veiled before, it was veiled in the condescension. With respect to Jesus' divine nature, it cannot be said that any new glory or status was gained in this or any stage, any other stage in the, in the exaltation. And the reasons for this are obvious. God has eternally been infinitely glorious. God does not grow or shrink in any of his attributes. He does not change. He stays the same forever. So that is how we are to think about the exaltation of the divine nature. It is in the resumed recognition and resumed display of power and glory that always was, but was veiled and hidden while Jesus lived among us as a servant on earth. It is in the taking back up of divine rights that were always possessed, but set aside during the time of his humiliation. So that being said, consider his human nature. While it is true that we humans have worth as image bearers of God, let's not make the mistake of viewing ourselves too highly. After all, we were made from the dirt of the earth, the stuff that we walk on, the lowest thing that there is. We are dependent creatures that need to sleep or we die. We need to eat or we die. And as a matter of fact, there are places on earth where if you simply go outside dressed the wrong way, you'll die. Let's face it. 
We aren't as impressive as we think we are. Yet a being with a human nature, an actual man has been exalted to sit in authority over all creation, having all power and all authority. Think about that. The very position where God sits, a man has been placed there by God. It's amazing. This is mind-boggling. This is extreme high honour. This is the honour that belongs to the Son of Man, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus, as far as his divine nature was concerned, was always highly exalted. But his human nature, having humbly obeyed God, was given a unique honour among those born of women to sit at the right hand of the Father. God is so gracious. David in the Psalms ponders, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Brothers and sisters, God has not only noticed us, but has made himself like us to redeem us and has seated the man Jesus at his right hand. This is amazing. So the fourth and last stage in the exaltation of Jesus is his physical return to earth. Having just heard of all the authority and honor and power possessed by Jesus, it can be confusing to look around at the present state of our world and wonder, is any of this really true? Is Jesus really so high and exalted? Everywhere we look, Jesus is being mocked and disregarded. His rule is being ignored. His decrees and commands are trod upon by men and women of every place, young and old, rich and poor. And what's more, his people, the church, those whom he loves, are being slandered, beaten, murdered. Yet to many people, Jesus doesn't seem to be acting on their behalf. Where are the armies that it is said that Jesus has? Where are the heavenly host? As the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the power of the God-man? Just wait. (laughs) The day of the Lord is coming. The day is coming when the same Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the power on high will be coming again. Just like he said he would. The same way that those disciples saw him leave, he will return. With the clouds of heaven, the armies of heaven following him, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And on that day, the wicked people of the earth will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to crush them and bury them in a futile attempt to hide themselves from the fury of the Lord. Jesus the Christ will return in judgment. And whereas the first time he came he was born in a lowly manger and was reviled and mocked and treated shamefully, not so with his second coming. Make no mistake. 
When he comes again in judgment, he will come in glory and power. Whereas before he came as a silent lamb to the slaughter, when he comes again, he will be the roaring lion and he will be doing the slaughter. No more a humble servant, but the exalted king, the mighty warrior. The return of Christ is a significant stage of his exaltation because it is in this stage that all men will be forced to see and acknowledge him. To see and acknowledge that all judgment has been given into his hands by the Father. He will deal out retribution to the wicked and reward those who have trusted in him. All men will see that Jesus is the man with whom they must deal. Again, as Philippians 2 verse 9 teaches, his name is the name that is above every name. All allegiance and respect and honor is to be given to him and will be given to him when he comes again, whether you like it or not. Verse 10 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not, you are going to be face down on the floor before Jesus. Recognize that. But woe to those who oppose the king. If the scoffers find it easy to deny the reality of Christ's exaltation in the resurrection, which they do, and deny his ascension, which they do, and deny his seating at his right hand, which they do, they will not be able to deny his second coming. The church of Christ will be vindicated and the mouths of the scoffers shut. Make no mistake, right now the exaltation of Christ is a reality, but it is hidden from our sight. But the day is coming when every eye shall see him. The exalted Christ will return in judgment to rule upon the earth. And as the Bible says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And when all the wicked have been removed, God will live with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ's kingdom shall never end. The return of Christ to earth is significant because it puts an end to any doubt that God has highly exalted Christ. So in summary... The exaltation of Christ consists of those four stages. Resurrection, ascension, seating at the right hand of God, and physical return to earth. Each one of those stages displays the fact that God has indeed highly exalted Christ. So whenever we think about Christ's exaltation, we should now be able to appreciate just how magnificent it is. So now, having touched upon the nature of the exaltation, we can begin to examine just how it came to be. We're now going to be looking at the cause and purpose of Christ's exaltation. The text says that Jesus humbled himself and made himself lowly and obeyed God even to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Right away we see from the text that the cause of Christ's exaltation was God. He was the one who brought it about. Jesus did not exalt himself but God exalted him. And this is so that the glory for Christ's exaltation 
would go to God, as it says in verse 11. It is to the glory of God the Father. So Paul has made the point to identify God the Father as the exalter. Emphasis is placed on God the Father as if his act of exalting Christ was based in him and his prerogative. After all, he gets the glory for it. And here's the important point. For God the Father to get all the glory for exalting Christ, his act had to be based in his grace. His grace being the things that he does, not because he owes anyone anything, but because he chooses to do them when he doesn't have to. When God acts out of his grace to give something, no one can say that they earned whatever it is that they're getting. Grace can't be earned. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Let me give you an example. If you and I were strangers, but out of grace, I gave you a million dollars, then the glory for that would rightly go to me. Everyone who heard about it would say, wow, what a generous guy. The focus wouldn't really be on you, because all you did was receive someone else's grace. You received something that you didn't earn, but it was given to you freely. But now, it seems that we have a dilemma. Because the scripture presents Christ's exaltation as being the result of his humility. Christ's exaltation seems to have been earned by his humility, and not as a result of the Father's grace. Going back to that analogy, it's as if, rather than being strangers, I was your boss. If then you did your work and received the correct payment of a million dollars, then it's not out of grace that I gave you the money, but it was your right to get it. I didn't have a choice but to give it to you. You earned it. In such a case, the glory would go to the worker for having earned so much. Yet the text says... The exaltation of Christ was the glory of God. So the question is, did Christ earn his exaltation? Or was it graciously given by God? The scripture presents both as being true. But this is a dilemma because they can't both be true, at least in the same sense. If Christ's exaltation was based on God's grace, Christ would not be able to claim it from the Father as his right Yet if Christ's exaltation was earned, then Jesus would have every right to lay claim to his exaltation. Like the million dollars, it would be what he worked for and deserved. Such that denial of it to him would be wrong. So how can the exaltation of Christ be based on both grace and merit? The only way this works is if God is the one who graciously offered to, rather, if God is the one who graciously offered the reward of exaltation to his son when he didn't have to. It is grace in that it was God's own choice to offer to reward his son for something that his son was supposed to do anyway. For humbling himself. Let me explain that further. My child is supposed to obey me. When I say to her, Eliza... Pick up your toys. Compliance is required of her. That's the end of it. If she were to come to me afterward and say, Daddy, I obeyed you and picked up my toys, so now you have to give me some chocolate. 
I'm well within my rights to say no to her. She has not owed a reward. She has simply done what she was supposed to do. But if out of grace I say to her, Eliza, if you obey me and pick up your toys, I will give you some chocolate. Then, once she does what she is supposed to do, in doing the work of obeying me and picking up her toys, then she can be said to have merited her reward. So in that way, the chocolate can be said to have been given by the grace of the father, yet earned by the work of the child. But this now raises a further question. Did Jesus owe the father humility? I just, I just said now that I just now said that the father was under no obligation to offer reward to the son for that which he was supposed to do anyway, namely humbling himself. So the question is, was Jesus duty bound to humble himself before the father? Was it the father's right to demand obedience and humility from Jesus? In the same way that I have the right to demand obedience and humility from Eliza as her father. Well, the answer to this question requires us to once again delve into the two natures of Jesus. Consider Jesus' divine nature. As God, Jesus is equal with the Father. Can one who is equal with the Father be said to owe him humility? No. Equality with God was his right. Glory and majesty with him was his right. As God the Father is to be revered, so is God the Son to be revered. Now let me caveat that by saying that we do see within the Godhead an authority-submission dynamic, where the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit glorifies the Son. But notice that they do this because it has always been their good pleasure to do so. They don't do it out of any requirement for the Son to submit because he is lesser than the Father. We as men, however, have a requirement to submit because our nature is lesser to that of God's. But it is not so with the persons of the Trinity. So if that said, in terms of the Father and Son's inherent worth and dignity as divinity, there is no difference between them. One cannot demand humility from the other on the grounds of one being lesser than the other. They are equal. As a matter of fact, it is from this equality that the significance of Philippians 2 Verses 6 and 7 is derived. The significance of Jesus' condescension is seen in, the, in that he set aside what was rightfully his, namely, equality with God. So as it regards Jesus' divine nature, we can't say that humbling himself, that in humbling himself he was doing what he was supposed to do or what he was duty-bound to do. Ah, but now consider Jesus' human nature. As a man, Jesus did owe humility to God. As far as Jesus' humanity is concerned, Jesus was obliged to perfectly obey and reverence God and submit to him on account of his nature as a man, being lesser to that of God, having been created to serve God. Thus, Jesus as a man was merely doing his duty in humbling himself before God. Yet God in his grace was pleased to offer reward for it, and Christ, being sinless, was able to perfectly merit that gracious reward. God the Father is shown to be gracious in the way he is willing to reward Jesus for his humility. And this is also instructive for us. God wants us to learn something about how he regards humility in the way he rewards his son. 
You see, human beings having been corrupted by sin since the fall are prideful by nature. As a matter of fact, it was pride that led to humanity's fall in the first place. How did the serpent tempt Eve? He enticed her with the notion that if she ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, she would be like God. Even Satan became a sinner due to pride. He boasted that he would ascend to the throne of God and that he would be like the Most High. Some theologians have even gone as far as to posit that pride is the mother of all other sins. So in our sin, we are prideful by nature. Seeking to elevate our own wills and desires and purposes above those of God. Sinful people thus despise genuine humility. Seeking only to be boastful and not valuing lowliness and the denial of one's own self-importance. Even when sinners seem to be displaying humility, the truth of the matter is their motives aren't pure. How can they be? Their hearts are deceitfully wicked. What they think is humility is pride in disguise. Some people even boast about how humble they are. Imagine how ironic that is. Others perform acts of humility only because it makes them feel good. It's still, at the core of it, all about us. We despise genuine humility. Thus we disregard genuine humility. We want nothing to do with it. But God reminds us of its value and how much he loves the humble by the way he rewards those who are humble. Just look at the high honors the Son of Man has been given by God. God has subjected all things to him. And what about those who follow Christ's example and humble themselves? The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to know the value and blessedness of genuine humility before him. God wants us to know that our rightful place as created beings is in worshipful submission and subjection to him. We owe him humility simply by the fact that we are the creature and he is the creator. God owes us nothing, but we owe him honor and humility. Yet God in his rich grace offers us reward for that which we ought to give him for no reward. And just as God teaches us of his grace in offering us reward, Jesus teaches us how to glorify God in the fact that he doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't exalt himself. Jesus shows that the honor of exalter rightly belongs to God. Since God is the one who exalts the humble, glory is seen to be his alone. Those who boast in themselves seek to rob God of his glory. All who boast in themselves seek to dethrone God and enthrone themselves, just like Satan desires. But far from robbing God of glory that rightfully belongs to him, our very purpose in life is to glorify him. To ascribe glory unto him. To recognize and acknowledge that that which has always been true. That God is the only one worthy of all honor and praise. The goal of Christ when he came to earth 
wasn't only our redemption. Actually, I can go as far as to say it wasn't even the primary uh, reason for our redemption. It wasn't primarily our redemption, redemption rather. The goal of Christ coming to earth wasn't primarily our redemption. As we heard from Pastor John in a sermon a few weeks ago, in actuality, our redemption is in, incidental in the grand scheme of things. So what then is the main point of existence and the creation if it isn't us and our salvation? It's the glorification of God. That's why we're all here. That's why creation is here. And that's primarily why Jesus came to earth. To save us, yes. He loves us, yes. But it was primarily to the praise and glory of the Father. All of creation and everything that has ever happened or will happen is for the purpose of glorifying God. And this is why when Paul concludes his teaching on Christ's example of humility and its subsequent reward, he says, to the glory of God the Father. Let us be instructed to us. Let us seek not our own glory or to be satisfied in ourselves when we succeed at something. Let us not exalt ourselves. Give the honor and glory to God. When you impress your prospective boss at a job interview, don't boast in yourself. Remember who has shown you favor and blessed the work of your hands. Glorify God. When you get back your results after a challenging exam and you've done well, remember who gifted you with your mind. Remember who provided you with the tools you needed to study. Glorify God. When you've made it through the day having cooked and cleaned and taught your children and put them to bed on time, you feel like superwoman. Remember who gave you the strength and will. Your own power didn't see you through the day. Glorify God. When you enjoy the love and intimacy of your spouse, when you're glad that they're in your life, Remember who placed them there. Remember who joined the two of you together. You may not be as charming and as attractive as you think. <laughs> Glorify God. Jesus in John 12, when anticipating his grim task of going to the cross, said, But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This was Jesus' mission when he came to earth, and it ought to be our mission as well. In conclusion, I want us to remember that those who humble themselves before God will, in due time, be exalted by God. He doesn't owe us the reward of exaltation, but he is pleased to offer it. When we embrace humility and seek not to exalt ourselves, but seek the exaltation that comes from God, we give him the glory that he rightly deserves. God exalted Christ for his humility and will also exalt those who believe in him. Just as Christ's body was raised to life, immortal and glorious, we too will share in this resurrection and everlasting life. And just as Christ ascended one day when that trumpet blows, we too will be caught up to meet him in the air, to be seated with him in heavenly places, and even as Christ will return to reign on the earth, we will reign with him. Praise be to God that he pours out his blessing upon the humble.
If you're hearing me tonight, whether in person or by way of recording, know that you must humble yourself before God if you want to have any hope of tasting of the blessings of this reward. If you're not a Christian, recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That God's wrath is waiting to be poured out on you. On account of your sin, don't boast in your own perceived goodness. The scriptures say that there is none righteous, no, not one. Don't allow your pride to fool you into thinking that you are better than you are. If you would call yourself a Christian, but you are still trusting in your own effort and good works to save you from your sin, repent and humble yourself before God. Only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to remove the wrath of God from upon your head. Your own righteousness is as filthy rags. It is the height of pride or hubris to think that you could appease God's holy wrath by your feeble efforts done with impure motives. Stop trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. You will fail. Instead, recognize your failure and turn and trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Then go and do your good works out of appreciation and love for God. Humble yourself before God. Take your prideful trust off of yourself and believe in His Son. Believe that He really was the Son of God. That He really lived and He really died upon a cross to bear the sins of all who had placed their faith in Him. Believe that on the third day He rose from the dead, having paid the price for your sins, for your pride, for your boasting. If you do, you will be a partaker of this reward. A partaker in the grace of God. So may we all seek to be humble at Christ. Looking forward to that blessed reward of exaltation. All to the praise and glory of God. Who has richly blessed us in Christ Jesus. Amen.